Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Commence so well. They were no longer in search of Harry Grant. This continent where he was not, and never had been, threatened to prove fatal to those who sought him. And when these intrepid countrymen of his should reach the shore, they wouldn't find the Duncan waiting to take them home again. The first day passed silently and painfully. Every ten minutes the litter changed bearers. All the sailors' comrades took their share in this task without murmuring, though the fatigue was augmented by the great heat. In the evening, after a journey of only five miles, they camped under the gum trees. The small store of provisions saved from the raft composed the evening meal, but all they had to depend upon now was the major's carabine. It was a dark, rainy night, and morning seemed as if it would never dawn. They set off again, but the major could not find a chance of firing a shot. This fatal region was only a desert, unfrequented even by animals. Fortunately, Robert discovered a bustard's nest with a dozen of large eggs in it, which Albinet cooked on hot cinders. These, with a few roots of porcelain, which were growing at the bottom of a ravine, were all the breakfast of the twenty-second. The route now became extremely difficult. The sandy plains were bristling with spinifex, a prickly plant which is called in Melbourne the porcupine. It tears the clothing to rags and makes the legs bleed. The courageous ladies never complained, but footed it bravely, setting an example and encouraging one another by word or look. They stopped in the evening at Mount Bulla Bulla on the edge of the Jangala Creek. The supper would have been very scant if McNabbs had not killed a large rat, the Muscanditor, which is highly spoken of as an article of diet. Albinet roasted it, and it would have been pronounced even superior to its reputation, had it equaled the sheep in size. They were obliged to be content with it, however, and it was devoured to the bones. On the 23rd, the weary but still energetic travelers started off again. After having gone round the foot of the mountain, they crossed the long prairies, where the grass seemed made of whalebone. It was a tangle of darts, a medley of sharp little sticks, and a path had to be cut through either with the hatchet or fire. That morning there was not even a question of breakfast. Nothing could be more barren than this region, strewn with pieces of quartz. Not only hunger but thirst began to assail the travelers. A burning atmosphere heightened their discomfort. Glenarvan and his friends could only go half a mile an hour. Could this lack of food and water continue till evening? They would all think on the road, never to rise again. But when everything fails a man, and he finds himself without resources, at the very moment when he feels he must give up, the providence steps in. Water presented itself in the cephalots, a species of cup-shaped flower filled with refreshing liquid, which hung from the branches of coloriform-shaped bushes. 
they all quenched their thirst with these, and felt new life returning. The only food they could find was the same as the natives were forced to subsist upon, when they could find neither game nor serpents nor insects. Paganel discovered in the dry bed of a creek a plant whose excellent properties had been frequently described by one of his colleagues in the Geographical Society. It was the Nardu, a cryptogamous plant of the family Marsilacea, and the same which kept Burke and King alive in the deserts of the interior. Under its leaves, which resembled those of the trefoil, there were dried spurls as large as a lentil, and these spurls, when crushed between two stones, made a sort of flower. This was converted into coarse bread, which stilled the pangs of hunger at least. There was a great abundance of this plant growing in the district, and Albin had gathered a large supply, so that they were sure of food for several days. The next day, the 24th, Mulrady was able to walk part of the way. His wound was entirely cicatrized. The town of Delegit was not more than ten miles off, and that evening they camped in longitude 140 degrees, on the very frontier of New South Wales. For some hours a fine but penetrating rain had been falling. There would have been no shelter from this, if by chance John Mangles had not discovered a sawyer's hut, deserted and dilapidated to a degree. But with this miserable cabin they were obliged to be content. Wilson wanted to kindle a fire to prepare the nardo bread, and he went out to pick up the dead wood scattered all over the ground. But he found it would not light, the great quantity of albuminous matter which it contained prevented all combustion. This is the incombustible wood put down by Paganel in his list of Australian products. They had to dispense with fire, and consequently with food too, and sleep in their wet clothes, while the laughing jackasses, concealed in the high branches, seemed to ridicule the poor unfortunates. However, Glenarvan was nearly at the end of his sufferings. It was time. The two young ladies were making heroic efforts, but their strength was hourly decreasing. They dragged themselves along, almost unable to walk. Next morning they started at daybreak. At 11 a.m. Delegate came in sight in the county of Wellesley, and fifty miles from Twofold Bay. Means of conveyance were quickly procured here. Hope returned to Glenarvan as they approached the coast. Perhaps there might have been some slight delay, and after all, they might get there before the arrival of the Duncan. In twenty-four hours they would reach the bay. At noon, after a comfortable meal, all the travelers installed in a mail-coach, drawn by five strong horses, left Delegate at a gallop. The postillion, stimulated by a promise of a princely docure, drove rapidly along over a well-kept road. They did not lose a minute in changing horses, which took place every ten miles. It seemed as if they were infected with Lenarvan's zeal. All that day and night, too, they traveled on at the rate of six miles an hour. In the morning at sunrise a dull murmur fell on their ears, and announced their approach to the Indian Ocean. They required to go round the bay to gain the coast at the 37th parallel, the exact point where Tom Austin was to wait their arrival. 
When the sea appeared, all eyes anxiously gazed at the offing. Was the Duncan, by a miracle of providence, there, running close to a shore, as a month ago, when they crossed Cape Corrientes, they had found her on the Argentine coast? They saw nothing. Sky and earth mingled in the same horizon. Not a sail enlivened the waste stretch of ocean. One hope still remained. Perhaps Tom Austin had thought it his duty to, to cast anchor in Twofold Bay, for the sea was heavy, and a ship would not dare to venture near the shore. To Eden, cried Glenarvan, immediately the mail coach resumed the route round the bay, towards the little town of Eden, five miles distant. The postilion stopped not far from the lighthouse, which marks the entrance of the port. Several vessels were moored in the roadstead, but none of them bore the flag of Malcolm. Glenarvan, John Mangles, and Paganel got out of the coach, and rushed to the custom-house to inquire about the arrival of vessels within the last few days. No ship had touched the bay for a week. "'Perhaps the yacht has not started,' Glenarvan said, a sudden revulsion of feeling lifting him from despair. "'Perhaps we have arrived first. John Mangles shook his head. He knew Tom Austin. His first mate would not delay the execution of an order for ten days. "'I must know at all events how they stand,' said Glenarvan. "'Better certainty than doubt.' A quarter of an hour afterward, a telegram was sent to the syndicate of shipbrokers in Melbourne. The whole party then repaired to the Victoria Hotel. At 2 p.m. the following telegraphic reply was received. "'Lord Glenarvan, Eden, Twofold Bay.' The Duncan left on the sixteenth current. Destination unknown. G. Andrews, S.B. The telegram dropped from Glenarvan's hands. There was no doubt now. The good, honest Scotch yacht was now a pirate ship in the hands of Ben Joyce. So ended this journey across Australia, which had commenced under circumstances so favorable. All trace of Captain Grant and his shipwrecked men seemed to be irrevocably lost. This ill success had caused the loss of a ship's crew. Lord Glenarvan had been vanquished in the strife, and the courageous searchers, whom the unfriendly elements of the Pampas had been unable to check, had been conquered on the Australian shore by the perversity of man. End of chapter 19 and end of book 2